Welcome to the Feminist Book Chat podcast. I'm your host, Lou, founder of the FBC Paris Book Club, a community of readers that focuses on intersectional feminism. We first met as a group in September 2018 at Shakespeare and Company Bookshop. Since March 2020, we have been meeting online and welcoming authors to some of our book club sessions. To see what we get up to as a community, you can follow us on Instagram, at the FBC Paris, and Substack. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Valentine Carter, author of These Great Athenians, which has just been published by 27, the adult imprint of Nobrow Press. Valentine's debut novel gives voice to the often forgotten and maligned female characters of Homer's epic The Odyssey. It is described as a celebratory ode to those who survive within and outside of gender norms. Valentine and I had a very rich discussion that covered everything from their writing process, getting published with 27, and these 16 female voices that they write about. Who is their favorite? When did they first come across Greek mythology? How did that experience transform as an adult when you realize the sexual violence um, that many of the women face? We also got to speak about the LGBTQ plus representation within Greek mythology, something that feels so glaringly obvious and yet is not spoken about as much as one would think. I had a great time talking to Valentine and I hope you really enjoy listening to our conversation. Hi Valentine, welcome to the FBC Paris podcast. First of all, congratulations are in order. We are going to be talking about your debut book, These Great Athenians, which came out just last week. So hot off the press. Um, But before we get into your wonderful book, could you tell uh, the FPC Paris listeners who you are? Well, I am, I'm talking to you from Brighton uh, in England, which is uh, a lovely uh, city, which is famous, I think, for having a big queer community. So I am... Mm. um, non-binary writer uh, I would define myself as queer butch um, and that's very much where my sort of poetry and my writing is coming from in terms of um, representing women and my experience of um, of that um, I'm also studying for a PhD so I'm interested in really nerdy aspects of writing as well which is why the book has got so many kind of poetic for explore so many kind of poetic forms yeah. um and i'm also really into like video games and fantasy and comics and all of that stuff so for me myth is very much part of that tradition as well as a sort of very you know intellectual cultural pursuit well thank you for that for that introduction i think it's um it's really interesting what you say about the uh, kind of video game sci-fi i'd never thought about it but it does seem to fit very easily within uh, the world of mythology which i think you know has been reserved for far too long um you know, with kind of academic, stuffy, older, mostly male, predominantly white, (laughs) kind of. (laughs) Um, I think we can all conjure up an image of 
who a classicist is. I mean, luckily that's changing and you are one of the voices contributing uh, to this, you know, as you say in, in, in the gorgeous uh, preface, like part of the joy of mythology is that each new telling is, can be um, an interpretation and that there can just be so many voices. Um, so you are one of the newer voices emerging and perhaps filling in gaps or um, helping us to understand the women specifically of Greek mythology. Um, let's kind of maybe go back a little bit. And um, can you remember when you first came across Greek mythological characters? I can. I think it was, I got a book out of the village library like I lived in a really small village in the middle of nowhere and I was I was all, I was into books which was good because there wasn't much else to do um oh. and the village library was in a porter cabin um I can't remember why but it was really strange and it always had this feeling that it was temporary and it was going to move off at any point so whenever I went I would always take out as many books as I possibly could <laughs> and one of the books that so I got through the like the stock in the library quite quickly and ah. and one of the books that the librarian actually recommended to me was the Faber book of Greek mythology. Right. And it was full of like short stories of loads of different stuff. Like there was Icarus and then there was the Cyclops um, and there was Circe. Um, and I didn't realize then, cause I, I don't think I was very old. I think I was only about seven or eight. I didn't realize that, that, that I just thought they were stories. Right. Like, I didn't realize that you know, like Circe and Cyclops were part of a bigger arc and that there was Jason and he'd got a whole myth arc and all of this stuff. I just didn't know that. And it's like lots of lots of um, sort of kids today, their, their first um, meeting of myths is like Disney films like Hercules and stuff. Yeah. So it's not, so I don't, I, don't, I think kind of, you know, the academics and classicists that you were, you were talking about before, I don't think they realise that loads of people don't know that they're supposed to be these incredibly heightened you know um artifacts or cultural practices or whatever people just yeah. think that they're that they're just stories and mm. in a sense they are so that was kind of the first thing and I I kept it renewing it and renewing it and like role playing some of the characters <laughs> and stuff and then I sort of graduated to other stuff to do with mythology. And then it sort of became a bit clearer that there was all of this stuff that you could read. Because I was the world. Sort of, yeah. And I was the sort of kid that used to get really into stuff and like read like if I like I remember reading Eni Blyton's Mallory Towers. Oh I read my the first one. And then I had to read the next one. And then I just read pretty much everything that she read. And I still do that now with like Margaret Allingham and people. I just read the whole all of it until I've run out. Um, so you I commit. Through you fully commit. Yeah, I get. I'm I like it. that. You're really <laughs> yeah. into it. Yeah, <laughs> fully into it. Um, yeah, and I think I don't think it was till I was at university that I really kind of realised that that was something that, as you know, a working class kid on a housing estate in a village, I, ha I had. A, it was weird that I had access to it, and I didn't. I didn't understand that. And I think as a result now, that doesn't really interest me. The idea that they're this rarefied thing that you have to 
have a load of education to understand and all that stuff like it like in the book it came to my attention that i don't know how to pronounce some of the names or the words because i've because i because i re- i learned about them by reading and nobody yeah. told me. i've never heard them out loud right i'm on google translate now going i don't know how you say that and <laughs> i go oh no i've been saying it wrong how embarrassing <laughs> do you know what i actually um sorry to interrupt you but i did a couple i had to google a couple of like how to pronounce Scylla because I wasn't I was like is this too hard or what, what is like? yeah, no, exactly. so yeah I, that, that really yeah. speaks to me as a, as a working class kid as well who yeah who who kind of discovered the much later than you I mean I think I was more of an Aesop's Fables kid yeah, yeah. um but yeah yeah sorry anyway uh we digress um so you discover them quite young but then I imagine there was also part of discovering them a little bit older, um, a loss of innocence, should we say? Yeah, <laughs> like they are so violent. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and like e- even um, even like quite quite re- recently, I was thinking about um, doing doing something that that used Ovid's Metamorphosis as the source text, and I read it. Mm. Oh, it's such hard going. Like the sexual violence in that book is like, I had to just go, I'm going to have to have a break from this for a bit. And then I put it down and I never picked it up again because I was like, oh, I don't want to. Just such a struggle to get through. But you don't, but you don't realise. And then looking at the Odyssey in Mm. such sort of, I hesitate to use the word depth, but um, um, you just realise that actually, Odysseus is not a nice guy. These suitors, are, what we're talking about is a sort of a, is, is like two decades of intense sex and constant sexual harassment. And the, these things, it's not, they're not, it's not fun and games. It's definitely not fun, of, fun and games. And I think especially anyone reading who is not um, pretty much a man, it's, <laughs> rough it's rough yeah. going you know I think there are potentially several potential kind of trigger like it should come with trigger warnings you know definitely so the the figures of Greek mythology have been with you for a, a, a very long time old old friends we could say definitely and 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 today we're talking about these great Athenians would you like to kind of tell listeners what what this book is how would you describe it so it's it's sort of a a ponderance upon what they mean to me Mm. and whether that the fact that they mean things to me as a certain type of woman Mm. means that they also mean things to other women and whether in thinking about those things in sort of a quiet way in a sort of creating a private space whether that is a way of women and and I use that word in its absolute broadest sense yes kind of coming together to think about the same things in a space that is a space of peace and quietness and that isn't this sort of frenetic yelling uh, oppressive space that twitter for example might be um because I think 
I think I think there are a lot of things that went into it and started me writing it. And some of them are technical things to do with writing and interest in form and representing mm. stories like that. But I think what sort of made me really pursue it and persevere with it now was was I think me wanting to create a space where you could take the heat out of some of those issues mm. and just kind of be with them in a way that wasn't uh, oppressive or argumentative or sort of, I don't know, about men or about something happening to me or that was just that I was in control of and that I could own in a sense. And I think um, my hope would be very much that, that my reader would find that in it as one of your readers I I love that you used that idea of pondering because as I was reading uh, the book it felt like a luxury to spend so much time with each of these characters I mean uh, I loved also kind of like the the mirror aspect so seeing Penelope and then seeing Melantho who Penelope kind of has a role in you know her downplay I I just loved getting to know new uh, female mythological characters and spending time with them and I already know that this is a book that I will be rereading and that I can you know pick it up and just turn to one particular woman because that day I'm feeling like you know and that's a really magical thing as a reader. These women kind of stay, I find that they stay with me. Um, and it's so much more than a simple kind of one-dimensional feminist retelling. These women were complex. They only had so many choices, even if you were a Penelope and you were higher up than um, a Melantho and... Uh, I, yeah, I just, I loved getting to spend time with these women and I'm so happy that you wrote this book. Um, thank so you. thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I wonder if you would maybe like to read something from the book for us. Would that, sure. would that be okay? I will read something from Athena's section, which Ooh. is called, I think, called Myophorus. <laughs> <laughs> which is um, an ancient Greek word that sort of translates as the equivalent of the Christian good shepherd. Mm. And sometimes in the book, the, sec the, the poems, I guess, are retellings of specific things that happen, but sometimes yeah. they're reflections. So it's different ones. So this is one of okay. the ones that is a retelling of something that happens in the source text. And we're at the point where Odysseus, bless him, has finally managed to find his way back to Ithaca. I mean, can Athena is on her way um, to meet him, to tell him what to do. Again. <laughs> yeah. Choreophorus. Athena is not fond of sheep. It's the oblong pupils that put her off. She feels similarly about goats. It's also the smell and the oily yet waxy feel of their wool. She is early for their appointment. He's still asleep under the tree where they left him with all his treasure piled up around him, so it looks like a dragon's lair al fresco. 
more spoils than if he'd returned from the Trojan War on time. Like a cat poised on all four paws. He didn't know they had an appointment. He never knew. Instead of going to wake him up, she's decided to take a walk down from the fields on the rocky hillside above the town, killing time. She has a lot of time. She has all the time in all the worlds. Her time is timeless. It's simultaneous. The fields are not the lush green fields of the island where Circe finds her ingredients, or the red fields of Erythia where Geryon rears his red cattle. These are grey fields, all flint and granite poised to avalanche towards the sea like cliffs that have been dislodged by a terrific gust of wind, or toppled gravestones. The sheep's hooves clatter over the stones as they follow the path between the gorse and thistles. Athena likes the speckles of yellow from the heads of the gorse and the lavender prickles of thistle, highlights among the grey rock and the dirty white sheep and her own brown shepherding robes. Why don't I have a dog? Athena thinks. That would have been nice walking along with a dog by my side. Although no, she thinks, a dog would worry the sheep. She crests a hill and stops, the sheep milling around as she looks out over the eastern side of the island. She can see his house and land, and then his father's house and land, then beyond, tumbling down towards the harbour, the town. The people are hurrying about the narrow streets, clambering up and down the steps between the small white buildings, blue doors opening and closing, opening and closing. He is still sleeping. If Athena looks hard, she can see him as if he were no more than eight feet away. She can hear him snoring like a pig stuck in a trough. Why are they never glamorous? I suppose it's because they age, she thinks. Still, he can look however she wants him to look. She could take years off him, add them on. She could make him taller, younger, stronger. She could make him do whatever she wanted, pretty much. She is paralysed by the possibilities. A sheep... Those fiendish oblong pupils glinting in the sunlight noses her hand. Its muzzle is soft and warm. Its gentle breath in her hand is inoffensive. Which one are you? Athena says. There's always the possibility that an animal or a tree is a woman she once knew, a nymph often, sometimes a mortal. Metamorphosis or unwanted pregnancy, two career choices for pretty girls. And then there are so many pretty girls, she thinks. Athena thinks all girls are pretty in one way or another. She stands on a ridge above a town full of pretty girls as they go about their business in differing states of obliviousness. None more pretty than Penelope, although she is facing a slightly different horror. Same species, different creature, thinks Athena. Like the sheep on Ithaca and the sheep on Sparta where Penelope came from. The sheep on Sparta have four legs the same length because they don't have to spend all their time walking around the same steep hill in the same direction, trying not to slip down into the sea. The sheep in Ithaca have adapted to living on the wonk. Penelope has a house full of monsters who would marry her before doing things that Athena won't allow to graphically flood her mind. I do, Penelope would say. You do what, though? You do acknowledge any lack of choice in the matter? Athena reminds herself of the body she is in, but it is male, and these concerns evaporate. She contemplates turning into an owl or sending a cold fog down the hills to shroud the town, just to remind herself who she, re- who she is really, just to remind herself that she isn't subject to these, what, realities? She's not subject to any reality, not even the reality of time or gravity. The friendly sheep totters away down the hill, leaving droppings behind it as it goes, like black olives. You could be arrows in a better world, Athena says, if I could make the world. The limits of power are frustrating wherever they lie. A strange mist rolls in from the sea, 
a mist of overlooking, of not noticing, that shrouds the island. Athena approves her handiwork and wanders down a path that leads through the fields towards the sea. She skirts the town and leaves her sheep, or someone's sheep, in a field stippled with rough tufts of grass. He is awake and counting his riches. But then he starts to pace back and forth in the lapping waves, as he is wont to do. And then he bursts into tears, as he is wont to do also. Athena wonders if the stone ship has made its way back to Fushionet, if the people have shared their fervent prayers to try and provoke Poseidon's mercy. Cheer up, love, it might never happen, Athena says. He is delighted to see another human. He has no idea where he is or how he will carry his treasure home. He remains as clueless as ever. His effusive greeting is comforting, like that of a dog after you've left it home alone for an hour or two and it has spent the time convincing itself that you are dead. He doesn't know where he is and pretends to be somewhere different from Crete or some nonsense. Athena, bored by him, takes her immortal form. Oh, he says, it's you. She detects a note of disappointment in his voice as if he would rather shoot the breeze with the shepherd for a while. She surrounds him with a fine mist so he can walk home without having anyone having to be bothered by him. She misses Perseus sometimes. At least he slayed monsters and he invented coits. Maybe after I've sorted all this out, she thinks, I'll go and have a nice game of coits with some friends. Oh, thank you. I mean, I feel like actually so much of the themes that you cover in these great Athenians, you know, uh, uh, um, are, are here. They're in this passage. Um, so there are several segues <laughs> that um, <laughs> I could now take. Um, I think the first one is going to be actually about the queerness within um, Greek mythology, something that, funnily enough, um, the older white male academics didn't seem to um, bring out, even though it seems quite glaringly obvious. And um, I say this obviously not as an expert whatsoever. Athena, uh, gender fluid. Um, some have called yeah. her asexual. Some have said perhaps she may have been lesbian. The jury's still out. Um, Apollo may actually be the original poster boy of bisexuality. Mm -hmm. um, there's theories about Artemis and uh, her friendship with Callista. Was it more? So, you know, and I hope it was. Um, and I mean, there's just there's so there's so much we could go on and on and on. Um, but there's so much there's so much queer what I would refer to queerness or at least LGBTQ plus representation yeah. within within Greek mythology. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of obvious. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's um, I think also not just in the sort of characters, but also. Yeah there are such themes about transformation. And I mean, if, it, even in the course of the, the Odyssey, Athena, like, I think she takes on the form of about six people <laughs> and birds. But there's also like, and exactly like she's yeah. turning into an animal, you know, an inanimate, like, it, I mean, it, yeah. Met, yeah. The, you, the, she says at some point metamorphosis, you know, which made me think of 
Scylla, which is another segue. Uh -huh. uh, but back to the kind of LGBTQ plus. Um... Yeah, and I, I think, but I think also it's that it's that idea that there aren't limits in the way that there are in the heteronormative that mm. it's entirely possible that mm. um like achilles for example mm. and then you've got you know you have you have m men who go off to war for years and are mm. only in the company of other men and then these sort of narratives happen it's it's you know the whole thing is just ripe for all of it a queer reading like I don't think there's much where you would go that is aggressively heterosexual <laughs> I have to say I agree <laughs> absolutely um I was I was listening to a podcast uh this morning on, on my commute and there was still, however, this patriarchal framing whereby, you know, because I believe even Zeus dabbled in the odd um, gay relationship. And there was still this patriarchal framing of, well, you know, two great men kind of worshipping and loving each other is, yeah, like, great. Uh, the lesbians, oof, I don't know female sexuality let's kind of keep yes. that suppressed so was lesbian a code word for virgin like it's still <laughs> interesting that you know the patriarchy is always there it's the kind of overriding default um heteronormative as well structure um so i love now that there are all these these possibilities i mean they've always been there it's frustrating um, and I know you say in your preface, like reading this, uh, you know, the favor version as a child um, helped you feel um, a little bit more okay. Whereas maybe in the day to day re real world, um, it was a little bit less comfortable. Um, again, the great thing about mythology, you can take from it what you want or what you need um, yeah, or definitely. what you desire. Yeah. So I love that. Um, so yeah, in, in this in the passage that you just read, um, there's also this idea of yeah, well, it says very explicitly met metamorphosis, um, which made me immediately think of of Scylla, who Scylla. I hope I'm saying this right and not I offending. Like I mean, <laughs> as long as I say it the same as you, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cool with that. Um, now you you she's your favorite. She is my favourite. Can you please tell us more about that? <laughs> she didn't start off being my favourite, actually. And I, the more what, I kind when of she was a nymph, or even after her transformation. <laughs> the, yeah, I did a nymph form. Doesn't do anything. Yeah, no. um, when when I started writing, um, I don't know why, because she the form she is described as in the source text is like incredible. Like she's got like six like there's one place she's described as having a belt made out of dogs which is oh, like wow okay, i sure. want a belt made out of dogs but only <laughs> yeah. the dogs are happy about it and love me that oh, would be the course. point of my belt consent from the dogs is a must yes yeah and then she's got like six heads like a snake like snakes and then yeah. these enormous mouths and i just i just finding it quite hard to get into 
her as a sort in in terms of how the other women in the book kind of operate because they're all within a sort of they all need to fit together in a in a way and I just and then I was um and then I happened across at some point the bit of the story that it's actually um Cersei that turns Scylla into the sea monster and then I was like oh so all those ideas about sisterhood and all of that stuff and how does it's briefly mentioned in in Cersei's section about that as being something you know like internalized misogyny and how women are awful to each other because that's sort of what ends up happening and then I sort of could kind of I found a sort of way into her as somebody who is excluded um and as like uh like even from like when I first happened across the myth like as a as a little gay kid um not fitting in and all that stuff and sort of then being an awkward teenager and trying to find a way of of Mm. kind of being and then sort of learning ultimately that I could spend all of this time and energy trying to fit in but actually what am I trying to fit in with anything that's great not really but also there's this whole other community that's wonderful and stuff and and I sort of I sort of felt like Scylla has is is has sort of she's been made abject but she's sort of like I want to use the word relishing it because she just these chips go by she and she eats the sailors and stuff and it's just brilliant and part of it is just it amuse it's I find it hilarious in a way because it's like this is what you have done and now I'm enjoying my vengefulness and I just want a role model I love it and then I think at the and then I think there was something sad about her having been made made a victim of another woman in a sense and the sort of sadness that exists within that that precise bit of that story and that she she's having to live with that and even though she's like rock star sea monster and men are terrified of her and all of this stuff she still has that essential sort of yearning I guess you know that that you know of of wanting to fit in, of wanting to be able to participate in this stuff without going, this seems mad to me, but I was just going to go with it. And I just, it just sort of really appealed to me. So when she, when she, um, no spoilers, because they all appear at the end, <laughs> when she's at the end, like it was really important to get her in that space on her own terms, but also not make it like everything's fine. Totally. And so, I had I think I had the most fun trying to work out how to um honor her yeah and I think you do it beautifully thank you um I think I I mean yeah I feel like we could maybe go on talking all (laughs) afternoon um but you do bring the women of you do bring all the women together at the end and I absolutely loved that it was part of why it was an element that I enjoyed in Circe when we get to see Penelope and Circe and I feel like I'm just quoting your preface all the time but you point out that you know all of these these women have they're 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 always by themselves 
they never get that strength of sisterhood um of female other females um they are friendless and they're also living with the constant threat or trauma of what men both mortal and divine uh, can will have done to them so i loved um how you brought them together and there's this moment where Cersei winks at Scylla when they're together and I I don't know I I mean I almost cry I'm a Pisces so I you know <laughs> like Scylla's <of> Pisces <laughs> oh there we go um so that it just really moved me because essentially their origin story is women being mean to other women because of a man because that's what kind of the patriarchy and the systems told us to be and to do I mean you know everyone must take in like responsibility for their actions but it ties into a bigger picture I just loved them coming together at the end especially those two um it almost felt I mean it it, it almost felt like a circle was closing even though obviously their story goes on and their friendship now goes on. Uh, thank you to your, thanks to your book. Um, I've also listened to a couple of podcasts, well, a couple of interviews with Emily Wilson, who is, who is the first female translator um, of the Odyssey. So I don't want to take it, take it for granted that everybody would know this, but it, it does seem like it's been quite mainstream that there's been you know, a lot of feminist retellings um, of Greek mythological characters. When you were kind of doing your research for this book, when you were writing these great Athenians, were those texts that you turned to? Um, what, you know, how, how was your research like, just to ask like a, a geeky, uh, <laughs> nerdy question? Yeah, um, so I, one of the things that actually prompted me to really crack on with the book was I was in a class at the poetry school and the tutor bought Anne Carson's autobiography of Red which is a sort of a retelling of um, Gary and it's just the it's one of my favorite books um, it's so good and it's um, I can't remember how she describes it but it's it's, it's poetry but she describes it as a novel and that immediately opened out a lot of kind of um, as, as you say, nerdy kind of technical <laughs> possibilities. Um, and I knew I didn't want to do something prosy. Mm. I wanted to follow that Audre Lorde quote about poetry being a sort of more rebellious kind of form. Um, and I did. And so I had read, read a few of those things and I read... And then I started to read them in a sort of different way and thinking about how um, men are represented in those books, because the majority of those books are written by straight, cisgendered women. White women um, as well. Yeah, sure, yeah. definitely. And that makes a huge difference Yeah, um, because they're the kind of writers who are writing very authentically mm. and with great clarity and insight. Mm. Um, and... I think I wanted to read a book that wasn't mm. from that perspective because I sometimes find it difficult to relate 
to those ideas or not that I find it difficult to relate but there's a job of work that has to be done for me to meet that work and I want I, yeah. I was like what would it be if I didn't have to do that work yeah because as you as as you've said the myths are are really queer and um they are there for me you know and and as a as a queer person so I sort of I sort of started to think about the decisions that these writers had made and how they sort of were telling the stories. And I sort of ended up on a sort of what if, what if, what if, what if sort of jag. <laughs> and it just sort of grew out of that. But I hope, particularly with Cersei, because I think I think Madeline Miller does such a phenomenal job of making it um, accessible is maybe not the right word, but and I really hate the word relatable, but of, of making it feel like it's your story as a yeah. as a woman. Mm. And, she, and even though it's it's very heteronormative mm. and that in the end they end up with cho- these children and this sort of and stuff. And it, it but it's mm. still there's something very lovely about the way that she honors Cersei. Mm. And I really, I really enjoyed that about about it. And the sort of whole way that she deals with, deals with the Scylla thing and stuff is interesting. Yeah. So I think, I think it's for me, it's very much, I, I walked with those women writers as far as I could. Yeah. And then I sort of wandered slightly off the path, tripped over a few brambles, <laughs> surprised a fox. I don't know, but um, yeah, just a, think, narrowly avoided a cliff edge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fell in a river. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think and also I think that's but that's you know that's as far as sometimes as a as a sort of minority it's difficult to sort of carry along that same path all of that way and produce yeah. that sort of stuff and certainly I think I think it's really important to me to use my authentic voice and to talk about the things that I I've experienced or the way that I see things and actually I think that's all I can do I can't be pretending that I'm some sort of you know I don't know 60 year old enormous white man with a wife and I can't write from that point of view do you know what I mean like my narrate my protagonists and narrators are never going to be yeah. anything other than similar to me and that's what I'm interested in yeah and I mean that is just a saturated <laughs> market yeah. we do not need more of that no offense no. to anybody um it is now time you know to be more inclusive and I think as well like we describe like the community at the FBC Paris we describe ourselves as you know intersectional feminists and sometimes I still feel like we need to add that intersectional like myself included um to remind people that it can't just be one type of woman um that there's a whole spectrum and this is why we need um, all these voices. It can't just be one voice or a few voices. Definitely. Um, so just another reason why, you know, um, I love the fact that you, you wrote these great Athenians because it is adding um, a, 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 a not wide, like a new perspective, a wider perspective that has perhaps been missing was there anything else that you um, look to or even from a writing form perspective, you know, you have to give each character their own voice, their own set of questions. How, how was that for you? Um, 
it was really it was I, it was really important early on that that was something that I considered uh, part mm -hmm. of the I mean the first bit that I wrote was Penelope mm -hmm. and I I actually took it to one of my MA classes to test out people's um, tolerance level for the repetition that happens. Oh, right. And yeah. they were fine with it. Cause yeah. I was like, this would annoy me, but actually it, <laughs> it didn't annoy people. Um, <laughs> it doesn't annoy everybody, but um, cause I was really interested in the idea that she remakes the shroud. And yeah. I was thinking um, it would be really interesting to have a sequence of poems about Penelope where they're slightly rewritten each time. Yeah. Just as she unpicks and then she redoes it. And of course she doesn't redo it the same every time because it's mm. a craft and an art. Yeah. Um, so I started from that point of view. And then I wanted her to have a form that was really similar to the source text form because okay. she's so caught up in that and trapped in that point in time in that mm. book. Um, and then at the end, when that form comes back, it's try it's kind of trying to reclaim it. Um, so that seemed that was quite that seemed quite uh, not obvious, but it was kind of quick to make the decision about that. Okay. And then because Calypso and Circe and yeah, Calypso and Circe are also weavers, I wanted to keep that repetitious thing going. And then yeah. I, I didn't want them to have the same form as Penelope because they're demigods. Yes. And they have more freedom and more choice. But they also don't have that much freedom or that much choice because um, Calypso's told that she has to let Odysseus go. Yeah. I mean, why she needs persuading, I, don't, I never understand, but <laughs> she does. Um, so I, I kind of decided that they would have sonnets because that's a traditionally quite a male form. So Petrarch mm -hmm. and Shakespeare and just kind of loosen it up a bit, but still give them a form. And then kind of Melantho and Athena and Sky Scylla because they are more more outside mm. in a sense Melantho is so inside that patriarchal violent cycle that she's almost moved herself outside of it because she she's become sort of so abject within that mm. that I thought it was more interesting to have her in her mind so I think the thing that I like about Melantho is they never really get all of her, like her imagination or her voice. They don't ever get that. Mm. So I, I've, she got a slightly more prosy section to reflect that. And her section is very similar to Athena's because Athena is the god and Melantho is supposed to be the most lowly of status. Yeah. And I don't think she is. I think she's she's a she is a woman of incredible power. Mm. Um, and and instinct and I, I think there's a much to admire about about her and how she she survives. Um, mm. And then the, the the women, I just did it like that. I don't know where that came from, <laughs> yeah. and then it just made me laugh. So I carried on doing it. <laughs> it yeah, definitely. And it was almost like um, the setting was um, a club toilet where everyone's like trying to get the mirror, trying to get some space, trying to pee like mate is someone gonna throw up like it just felt like a really kind of a small space uh, for so many personalities but in a much more kind of present day or modern uh context it was it was great you just have to sort of give into it I think and that that yeah. sort of when something is very um 
sort of even when you just glance at the page it's in a form that's very definitely mm. a form and that that is not you can't just read it maybe that easily like it doesn't help you don't get a lot of help I don't give you a lot of help in that section um <laughs> it's fine we have to do some work come on those readers <laughs> yeah I th- but I think I think in some ways I mean that's why I chose so many poetic so put so many sections in poetic form is because the contract that the that I think the contract contract that a writer has with a reader in poetry is is really different to in prose because the minute you open a book and see a poem you know as a reader that you're going to have to do something differently you're going to yeah. have to work yeah and I think my work is <laughs> I do I do I I I like to credit my reader with great intelligence and fortitude and therefore not give it to them on a plate and I always used to get into trouble not in trouble let's not say that <laughs> get like some feedback at, on the MA of being like you know you are expecting a lot of your reader and I'm like, I trust mm. my reader. I feel like maybe <laughs> it's worth them coming along. And I think I think that's part of a real thing that I try to do is to say to my reader, I know I'm asking a lot of you to read this thing with all these slashes and I'm not telling you who's talking, but stick with me and I promise I'm, I'm really trying to make it worth your while. Mm. So another like kind of purely superficial detail as well but um kind of an extension of of the form of of your writing the the outside the (laughs) how it looks visually um is really gorgeous and so there's like a very pastel kind of gorgeous natural flower these are flowers right I see them as flowers oh no what are uh-huh. these actually? They are oh, Avalon, who is so talented, who did the design. Um, they are bolts of cloth that have been knotted to look like flowers to pull through the weaving theme. Oh my God, of course, yes. Beading. It's so clever. It is so clever. And I love the colour scheme. And I love the, like, the different colours. It's actually quite handy as a reader because I was like, I know Scylla is black. <laughs> and I know Calypso is blue. So I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it's, a, it's just a really lovely detail. Um, was there anything in the colour scheme? Was that something that you creatively uh, had a say in? So originally, like this book started off as my MA dissertation. It was a lot shorter and a oh, lot wow. kind of different, different. It was really different. And it had yeah. this, um, it had the structure of it was another source text, which was a book, like a really old book from like Darwin's time. He'd taken it on the Beagle. Um, and it was, it was, it was split into color sections. So each, each, woman was a color and each poem was a shade in that book so it that's how it sort of started off so they kept so I when I chose the colors it was quite instinctive at that point Mm. because obviously Scylla is black and then Athena's red and she was also gray because that was a gray section um and then as we as I developed the book with 27 it just and it got bigger um and broader it just that structure felt really restrictive so we so I just ripped it up um (laughs) (laughs) that was a big moment in my life but I just ripped that up um and then it sort of took on this 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 the form that it's in now but the Mm. sort of the idea of the colors it were it was it was a it was a lovely idea that had like got real legs but not for this piece 
Mm. Um, but but it just sort of because it was in the intention of the original, I think it just stayed in the text somehow. So when when we came to do the design, they sort of kept the colors and they kept the um, the women in the same colors that they were mm. and stuff, just to delineate the book a bit more and to to help help the reader. Yeah. Yeah, so it's quite so interesting that it sort of it stayed. Yeah, it's a lovely detail with a lovely backstory. That's nice. We're, we're in autumn, we're, we're, in, we're going into winter. Are those kind of seasons that you like or are you more of a summer, a spring, summer? I re- I'm into autumn. You're into autumn. In a big way. You're like living your big. What do you yeah. love about autumn? What is it? I like the colours. Yeah. I like, I like the weather. I like a blue sky, a crisp yeah. cold. I like the clothes. Yeah. Um, I like a hat you can't really I don't like summer hats very much um so I'm into autumn and then yeah. winter I quite like the novelty of it yeah but then the dark nights start to get to me and then I'm fed up of the clothes I'm fed up of wearing millions of layers and then I just want it to be spring okay so yeah. so this is a sweet spot <laughs> yeah right it's, now or alternatively it's all downhill from here <laughs> Oh, no, no, you end the book with Dawn, which I found to be very hopeful. So we're going to end exactly. on this is your sweet spot. Yes. Um, but listen, what we always ask um, guests who come on the podcast is what they've been reading or what they have on their bedside table, what they're really excited to read. And so now it's your turn. What would you like to tell? the FBC Paris about? So I've got two books on my bedside table mm. at the moment. One of them is the collected Peanuts comic strips from 1975 to 1976. Oh, wow. Because I love Peanuts and I'm actually writing some poems about Peanuts. So that's sort of research. Yeah. But my fun reading <laughs> is a book, The Seep by Chana Porter, which is brilliant it is um, science fiction. Ooh. The main character is a 50-year-old trans woman and it's all about sort of alien invasion, but not like little grey men running around. It's like much more insidious and a bit scary and it's really cool. And it's, it's sort of, there's a lot of transformation in it. There's a lot of um, are human beings meant to be happy kind of stuff. Ooh. It's just a really, really good romp as well. So that's really good. I'm very excited. It was a birthday present. And I've, oh, I'm, nice. I find like fiction quite hard because I'm always reading it like as a writer going, oh, I don't think I would have done that. Why have you done that? <laughs> you always have your writer's hat on. Yeah. Or I'm going, oh, it's so depressing. I wish I'd done that. Oh. Um, but this is just, this is great. It's really good. So I recommend that. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about the imprint that um, these great great Athenians has um, been published through because it's pretty indie, pretty small, pretty new, I have the impression. Um, mm-hmm. Diverse Voices, how, like, how did that come to be? How did you end up working with um, 27? I had a tip-off that... No Brow, which Imprint 27 is part of, however that yeah. works, would, would 
starting a non-illustrated list because Nobrow do the most beautiful graphic novels and illustrated books. Um, yeah. Just gorgeous. Um, so they were like, they'd really, really be interested in your work. You should enter this short story competition that they're doing. And I, I had forsworn the short story competition and decided that I was never entering them ever again because I'm always like such an outlier in terms of subjects and stuff. This is what I've told myself that I never get anywhere and it's just depressing and I'm not, I don't cope with rejection very well. So I was like, mm. oh, who but then I, I'm sadly. with you on that. It sucks. Yeah. It's just, it's such a cruel world. I can't bear it. Um, and then I was like, I felt like, I ought to, that it would be a really good idea. And why had this information fallen into my lap? So I entered, entered the competition with something about echo. Um, that it was 2000 words. It's a terrible length for me because I like to go on a little bit. Um, and I didn't think anything of it. I just completely went, I'm not thinking about this. And then their editor emailed me and said, have you got anything longer? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> Um, so I sent her my thesis and it went from there really so it was wow. it was really like um, on one hand it is true that it's not what you know it's who you know and yeah. being on an MA provided me with access to this person who had this piece of information yeah. um, but also I, I'd done the work and I had the work so I was able to go yes actually I do um, and then it just went from there really that's very very cool that's a very story very cool story and like quite all came together quite organically and it could have been that it's like it's almost like a ugh, I don't know if this is a good reference but like the sliding doors reference yeah. where it's like oh what if you hadn't have entered that yeah that exactly. short writing competition but also like it's so like I worked so hard for many decades to get here yeah. I'm actually 300 years old sure um, you don't look it though <laughs> <laughs> and and I was just and I did the MA because I was at the point of just giving up and going this is never going to happen for me mm. um, and then I just got that little bit of luck that you need and it is luck like anybody that has a book in yeah. a bookshop was lucky enough for somebody to see something at a point in the time when they were receptive to whatever that person was doing and the only word for that happening is luck yes I'm very lucky oh well we are also lucky as your readers so it's it's only been out in the world for a week so maybe we should just let you enjoy <laughs> these great Athenians being out in, in the world but it do you have an idea for what comes next or what you would like to do I know you're also studying for a PhD um but in terms of writing and books and whatnot yeah I'm already up and running with my next Woo! novel um which is based on the Japanese form of zuhitsu, which I'm also not pronouncing right, oh. which is which I think that they describe as drawing with clouds. So it's like wow. you you have like you can have bits of narrative with character, but also yeah. there may be a list or a poem about a deer or whatever. But it's all kind of associative and relative, and you build up the kind of ideas and stuff through this accumulation of bits of writing. It just it sounds fabulous. Um, so I'm working on something to do with that, which which thinks about the idea that 
and I'm thinking of like climate change and decolonialization and um, reckoning with our pasts and stuff. Um, so, um, but if you stop locating history in time and think of it as being in a place, mm. then it changes our relationship or that community's relationship with whatever it is. So, um, so if you think about um, the issues with statues and stuff mm. that we have at the moment, if you say yes. these specific events, these awful events to do with slavery mm. happened in this, you know, 200, 100, 200 years ago, they, they don't feel, they feel different if you go, these events happened here. Mm. So you immediately, that so. community immediately has a different way into um, accessing that and dealing with it I think it's very easy to go it happened ages ago it doesn't matter when when you know these great Athenians the source text is like two and a half thousand years old but all the things that happened are still happening yeah that sounds absolutely incredible (laughs) what you're working on thank you for thank you for sharing that with us well we'll have to see how it turns out you know I'm not promising (laughs) hey yeah you know (laughs) I mean we can always delete this bit of the episode (laughs) and say it never happened (laughs) but that's a part of the creative process that's where you are right now and it might turn into something else it might turn into something fully formed it you know that's for me it's part of the creative process Uh, thank you so much for your time, Valentine. It has been absolutely wonderful to chat with you and to be able to speak a little bit more about um, these great Athenians. Oh, thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you.